Good morning, beloved. Uh, my name is Pastor Canaan. Go ahead and open in your copy of God's Word um, as we're going to continue in our series in the Gospel of John that we started last week. And we're only going to look at the first two verses of the first chapter of the Gospel of John. Last week was an, in- was an introduction. And just so you all know, the first handful of verses in the Gospel of John, you could preach that for a full year. Now, I'm not saying that's going to be a full year. I'm just saying today going might be a little long day, but it's going to be good. It's going to be all right. It's going to be amazing, in fact. Uh, if you're a learner, I mean, get your notebooks. There's going to be some things in there that you may or may not want to write down. There may be a, a bit of heady things in this sermon. You have, if you have a cross-reference sheet, you see I got a lot of cross-references on there. And I probably got more that may just fly into my head in the middle of the sermon. So, man, write them down. The theme of this gospel, the theme of the entirety of the gospel of John. See if I can get it. There you go. Is John chapter 20, verse 30 to 31. Don't turn there. But this is the theme of the book. It says Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these, meaning everything that John has written in, the, in his gospel, in his account of Jesus's life and ministry, these things in particular were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, not by knowledge, not by hard work, right? By believing, which means entrusting yourself to him. Trust is a good synonym for belief. By trusting him, believing in him, you may have life in his name. This is the, what I said last week, like the secret prayer of my heart. I'm, I'm just making it public. My heart's desire is that you come to true saving knowledge of who the Lord Jesus is. And if you already have come to that conclusion, he girds you up in the areas in which there's unbelief in you. I pray that by the end of this sermon series, not only you are impacted by the gospel of John, the things that he has written so that you may believe, but that as you're listening to the word, you're hearing things that your friends and your family need to hear so that they may believe. And then as as you're considering it, God is exposing the unbelief, the areas of unbelief, because we all have particular areas in our heart where we don't believe God. We'll trust him with this, but not with this. Right. And so I'm hoping that through this you'll hand those things that you're holding tight to him as well. So he can help cleanse those areas of unbelief that is in and plagues all of our souls. This is my fervent prayer for you, my beloved one. So just know that that's the spirit, that's the heart behind it all. And John wrote every word of this gospel intentionally for you, for you, that you may believe. I want to watch God work with anticipation and expectation and awe as he does this work within us. I want to give you all a pop quiz. You ready? What are the first four words of the Bible? In the beginning, God. Right. Amazing first four words of the Bible. It's the most familiar words in all of the Bible. The person who wrote these words is the his name is Moses. He penned these words. This is the very start of Genesis. And he says in the beginning, God, because newsflash, the Bible is not about you. The Bible is about God and what he's doing in and through his power of his spirit, his son for you and his glory. But he starts off our minds 
in the right place. He doesn't say in the beginning people, right? He doesn't say in the beginning we. He says in the beginning God. He's pointing your eyes intentionally to the right place. That's what Moses was doing. These words in the beginning, I'm going to give you guys some language stuff. This is why I said it could be a little, little heady. Just Somebody just turned on. You heard that? God just activated. Y'all heard that? The Bible is his story. Y'all get it? It's fire, right? I stole that. I don't know where that came from, but I stole it. It's good. Oh, my bad. Pop quiz. What's the first three words of the Gospel of John? In the beginning, right? So, so peep game. I love when God fixes my plans. I had the whole thing written out smooth, and he was just like, nope. Moses is pointing our eyes to the most important thing in the very beginning of the scriptures themselves. The first four words, in the beginning, God. John is playing homage to what Moses has done because his job is that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. And so when he opens up in his letter, the first words that he says is in the beginning, right? He's, he's bringing our minds back to remember the origin of all things. And he's going to point us to something that many of the readers of the Gospel of John may not know. These words right here in the beginning are important words. Here you go. Here's, here's, here's some language for you. Uh, those words in Greek is enarche, which means in the beginning literally means the point of origin. It means foundation. It means the source. It means the first cause. Literally, it means prior to anything existing. That's what that word means. This is in the beginning before anything else was. That's what, that's what Genesis is saying, and that's what John is saying, in the beginning. But what the keen reader is going to realize is that John is going to say something a little more and possibly even a little different than what Moses says. He's about to open our minds to something. John's about to tell us that in the beginning, God was not alone. Instead of saying, in the beginning, God, like it says in Genesis 1.1, this is what John says. In the beginning was the word. That's a curveball. Because for all of their history, all of the history up until this point, all we've ever heard was in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. God. And so now he comes up with his letter and, and the, the order. You Oftentimes these books are read in front of whole churches as they're copying whatever it is the apostle wrote. And the man stands and he says, in the beginning, and you can already see everybody writing God in there. But he throws a curveball. But it's not as much as a curveball as you might think. That's what we're going to get into a little bit. He says, in the beginning was the word. Although God was in the beginning, he's saying so wasn't this word. Now, this word right here was, I'm going to give you another language thing. Y'all ready for this other language thing? It's called the Greek imperfect tense. It basically modifies the sentence to say, in the beginning, always was the word. Okay, that's what, that, that's what it means when that, that's in the, imperfect, the Greek imperfect tense. Always was. In the beginning, the word always was. So we're reading this like this. In the beginning, which means prior to creation, was, which means always was, the word before creation, always existing the word. Now, let me just share with you this word that 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 John is talking about is Jesus. We find that out later on. 
Keep on coming and we'll get to that verse in about three years. Okay, it's verse 14. But he says, in the beginning, always was the word. Now, if all you've ever known is in the beginning, God. You're almost picking up a stone to throw it at John's head. Because he's claiming that there's somebody else that carries within him an attribute that only God can possess. We're going to get into what those look like in just a second. Before they get to throw a stone, John finishes his statement. In the beginning was the word, or before creation always was the word. And the word always was with God. Somebody's eternal. Whoever this word thing person is, they always existed with God. Nothing has always existed with God. God existed before anything was. So how could something be with him if nothing was with him before everything was there to be with him? Y'all feel me? John is making a huge statement here. He's telling us that this whole book is about this cosmic, powerful word who existed with God. There's four Gospels in the Bible. Remember, Gospels are accounts of Jesus' life. They all start a little different. Remember last week? They start different because they're written by a different author to a different audience. Matthew starts off his Gospel, especially in his genealogy, leading us to see how he's the king of the Jews. Mark has no genealogy of Jesus' existence whatsoever because the, the purpose of the Gospel of Mark is to show that Jesus is a servant. And a servant's genealogy is nil matter. Luke starts off his gospel portraying Jesus as the perfect man and runs his genealogy all the way to Adam because we know that Greeks, who that book is written to, one Greek in particular, Greeks are obsessed with the perfection of mankind. And so he runs the genealogy all the way to Adam to show Jesus is a descendant of Adam. He's the perfect man. So he's a king, he's a servant, and he's the perfect man. Well, here comes John waltzing into the situation. And he says, I know you've heard that Jesus is a king. I know you've heard that he's a servant. I know you've heard that he's the perfect man. But what I'm about to tell you, you've never heard, perhaps. Maybe this is the first time. Understand, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. Already they're like, what are you saying? And the word was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John starts off his gospel turning our eyes to the reality that Jesus is God. That's where he starts. Big implications on that. But he starts off by telling us, by showing us that Jesus is God. Now you're like, how? How? How do you know that's what he's saying? Well, firstly, he just flat out said it. So if you ever meet anybody who says Jesus wasn't God, I mean, the word was God. And I understand the language and the definite articles and all that. No, the word was God. But before he flat says it, he attributes to the word. I know it's like I said, it's going to be a little heady for a second. Hold on with me. He attributes to the word something called an incommunicable attribute. First, we have communicable attributes. Communicable attributes 
are qualities that we share with God. These are little bits of him that he gives to us. He loves, and guess what? We have the capacity to love. Justice, we have sense and understanding of what justice is. Grace, mercy, these are things we understand. These are things we deal with every day. These are called communicable attributes, attributes that God communicated to us when he made us, little pieces of him in us. Then there's something called incommunicable attributes. These are qualities we cannot share with God. Only God can have these things. The ability to create. We can make things, but we don't create things out of nothing. That's what ex nihilo means, out of nothing. Nothing is there. God can put something, create something there. We have to find something that already exists and manipulate it. Omnipotence, which means all-powerful. Omniscient, which means all-knowing. Self-sustaining, which means he doesn't need, he's the fire that needs no kindle and no oxygen. You understand? We are not self-sustaining. We're dependent in every way. Oxygen, food, our boss, money, clothes, name it. We need something. He's out here like, I don't need none of y'all, I need nothing. I'm self-sufficient in myself. We don't even understand that as a concept. And another concept we don't understand is eternality. Eternal is a concept that blows every human's mind because everything we've ever known had a beginning. And everything we've ever known up until a particular point has an end. And so when the concept of eternal shows up, we can't think far enough back because there's no end to the back. Doesn't even kind of make sense, but it makes perfect sense. This is what the word eternal means, without beginning or end. All right, and this dictionary.com, they got this right. I love when they get it right. Lasting forever, always existing. He's saying that Jesus always existed. I know what some of y'all are thinking. Wait a minute. I read my Bible, Pastor K. Jesus was born in a manger. He, he came when he was born through the womb of Mary. Keep on coming about three years from now. We're going to get to that verse where it talks about what happened. See how I'm going to keep him coming next week? No, what he does is he, he attributes to the word a, a, a characteristic that only God can have. This word here is another word I want to teach you, immutable. That means an unable to change. And once you are created, you've gone from the state of non-existence to existence. A change has already taken place. But God, there's no changing. And look what I love what they did. They didn't, they didn't mute God. It's the, one of the parts of the very definition of God. This is something that was always taught of who God was. The prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 40, 28, he says, do you not know or have you not heard? The Lord is an everlasting God. Moses wrote a psalm, and he said this in Psalm 90. He said, before the mountains were born, before they gave birth to the earth and the world, from eternity to eternity, you are God. Beloved, if God is eternal, that means there never was a point in which he was not God. He didn't develop into God. He didn't turn into God. He wasn't a man on another planet that became God. He just simply always was God. And what we tend to do, beloved, and this is what we got to be uh, uh, weary of, we cannot, as creatures of the dirt, think that we're going to encapsulate and entrap the, the, the eternal in the finite mind of ours. And so what happens is when God is something that we don't comprehend, we hack off a piece of who he is so that we can comprehend him. But God is not comprehensible in the fullest sense. He is beyond us in every way. 
And we do this with the word of God. It says this and it says this. Which one is it? Sometimes God is like, my ways are higher than yours, beloved. It works in my economy. You just don't get it. You ever run around with kids and they think everything is free? They just don't get it. Well, how come we can't leave the lights on? Having it, I remember my daughter, having kids is free. <laughs> Beloved, my ways are higher than your ways. You have no idea. Because she, she don't see nothing. See, people come to your house and they give you diapers. You don't even pay for nothing. Yeah, she didn't know what that hospital bill was like. If y'all had kids, help, help, help brother out, help people out. We cannot ever truncate the word of God or truncate who God says he is because we lack understanding as to who he is. And so let God be God from, from eternity to eternity, from everlasting to everlasting. He is God. Now, this is not the first time that an author of the scriptures claimed that Jesus was God. In fact, the book of John itself testifies to this all throughout the book of John. But outside the book of John, we have testimony too. Colossians 2.9. This is the Apostle Paul writing. And look what he says. He says, the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. The fullness, and that, that word of God's, uh, that, that word God's nature, that word is deity. It means that which makes God, God. Everything that makes God, God was found in the person of Jesus bodily. Titus, again, written by Paul. He says, while we wait for the blessed hope and appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul, again, making it, this is called the Granville Sharp Rule. It's a grammatical rule in the Greek. So he's basically just saying, yeah, this, this God and Savior, his name, Jesus. He does it again in Romans 9. He says, the ancestors are theirs, and from them, the physical descent. By physical descent came the Christ, who is what? Who is God over all. Praise forever. Amen. 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1. this is written by the apostle Peter, another, another dude. He says, in the introduction of his second letter, Simon Peter, a servant, of the apostle, uh, a servant and apostle of the Lord Jesus, to those who have received faith equal to ours through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews, whom we don't know who the author is of that book. We speculate, we postulate. I think it was Paul. I think it was written by Luke. There's reasons for that. But here, this, they're, they're quoting something of what God has said in the Old Testament. He says, but of the Son, he says... Your throne, O God, son, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of your kingdom, I mean, the scepter of your, I'm sorry, and the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. And then what I love, the Apostle John penned these words near the end of his life in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. He says, don't be afraid. This is the words of Jesus. He says, I am the first and the last. Beloved, if there is something that you need to know about the person of Jesus, John lets us know from the very outset what that first thing you need to know is. And that's that you need to know that the person of Jesus, who you are claiming faith in, is in fact God in flesh. How is he God in flesh? God entered into his own creation. He wrapped himself in human and humanity lived amongst us, was killed by the hands of his own creation to redeem his creation. The eternal put on finite for a moment. 
He felt like we felt. He hurt like he, we hurt. He cried like we cried. Shortest verse in the Bible is what? Jesus wept. He understood betrayal. He understood pain. Beloved, before he went to the cross, see, we have this idea in our mind that because Jesus is God, he didn't feel what we feel. We'll go over this more when we get to the verse about the word became flesh. But beloved, understand, before he went to the cross, he was in a garden sweating drops of blood, hemotridosis, because of what was about to occur, the crucifixion of his body. Asking his homies all around him, stay awake with me and pray with me. It's about to go down, and this is kind of a little scary right now. But not my will, Father. Your will be done. Because we have a mission, we have a task, and my task is to give myself as a substitute for those who will entrust themselves to me and my Father through the power of the Spirit that they may have life. Beloved, that's you. When we know, when we see, when we read that Jesus is God, it does not negate his humanity at all. But John wants us to know first and foremost that it's the... That because Jesus is God, any and everything he will do is straight from the Father's words, straight from the Father's lips. Even Jesus says this, I don't come to speak on my own accord, but I speak whatever the Father gives me to speak. Now, some of y'all are thinking in your head, some of y'all are thinking this. If Jesus is God, why is he called the son of God? If you didn't think that, I just put it in your head, right? Jesus is called the son of God. Well, why? Why is Jesus still called the son of God if he is God? Well, the, son, the term son of God, like its sister term, son of man, which we just sang, son of man. Y'all want me to sing? No. Like its sister term, son of man, it's a term that indicates a shared nature and substance. Son of God is indicating not that he's a second God or that he's a different God, but that he shares in God's nature. He shares in God's substance. Not only that, but the second reason why he's still called the son of God is because although Jesus is God, there is this, beloved. Check this out. There's a plurality in God's being. It's a term of distinction. The way the scriptures reveal God to us is in the form of what Christians have termed. This is not a, this is not a word you're going to find in the Bible. It's how we describe what we see in the Bible. And the word is Trinity. God teaches us, shows us that there is one God, but that one God reveals himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. How does that make sense? Beloved, I don't know. I don't know. But this is where you say, God, your ways are higher than mine. I ain't got no illustrations that work for this. And people have cooked up illustrations. And you know what? I think they're not that bad, but they all have flaws because God is bigger. He's more grand. He's more, he has more depth to him. He's called the son of God for a particular reason. It's a similar reason that he's called the son of man. He shares in the same substance and nature as humanity, but he also shares in the same substance and nature of God. You want a word that's not on here? That's called the hypostatic union. The fact that Jesus is 100% man and 100% God. Remember who wrote this? The, the man who wrote this gospel is a faithful Jewish man who believed 
the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Yet it's the same man who believes these words penned by Moses that God is one. They're saying there's a plurality in God. This first two verses is rocking the minds of anybody who's familiar with in the beginning God. Because he's saying God is more complex than what you had ever imagined. Because in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. God reveals himself as a trinity. Now let's come out of the clouds for a second, right? That just that was all good. That's good information. You need that information. But information by itself, you know, just stays in the book. Why is that significant for you? Why is it important to know from John's lips, the very first thing out of his mouth, that in the beginning was the word, right? Before anything was created, the word existed. He always existed, and he existed alongside God. And as a matter of fact, he shared in the nature of God. He was God. Why is that important? First thing that this this truth should do to you, it should bolster your faith. We're talking about, I don't have it up there. See, some of y'all looking, it ain't going to be there. Just, just hear me and just hear me. It should bolster your faith. This Jesus whom we've been praising is no mere man. This Jesus in whom you've been trusting is no mere man. He has inherent power within himself. Beloved, we struggle on a daily. We got issues in life. We got problems and situations. And John tells us in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and he was God. The one you're trusting has power to deal with the situation you're going through because he's not just a man. He's the divine. When you're struggling and you're praying, remember who you're talking to. We were praying this morning in a circle for this very service, and it was stoked within my heart. Like, wait a minute. Why is it often that we live our life and we pray as if Jesus has no real power? We live that way. We're not bold in the faith. We're not confident that our Lord is deity. He's God above any man. In fact, we, we make him small and we fear what people think. But this Jesus who you trust has power to see you through whatever the situation is. Don't forget to whom you pray to. Don't forget the name above all names. Don't forget it. He is. So when you say, oh, Lord Jesus, you're evoking the name of God. Do you all know who God is? The eternal one, the one who created the heavens and the earth, the sovereign ruler of all things. Majesty is his. All power is his. All knowledge is his. Every breath in your lung is his. Every time you see it's him. Benevolent lover of your soul. Creator of all things. Don't forget who he is. In the middle of your prayer, pause. All right, let me recalibrate Jesus. What does that mean? Lord, ruler of all things, Jehovah Jireh, the provider. Remember who he is. That should bolster your faith. You're not, you're not praying in the name of a man. You're praying in the name of the divine. Second thing it should do, it should sweeten the gospel for you. The eternal entered into time for you. When's the last time you allowed somebody to interrupt your day? for their benefit and no glory for yourself. God, the eternal one, enters into his own creation that his own creation might be redeemed. 
It's a beautiful picture of the divine condescending to humanity and absorbing all that we absorb. See, when you remember that Jesus is eternal and that we are but finite, it changes your, your, your attitude of gratitude. When someone doesn't have to do something for you, it changes your, your, your gratitude. You see, when you do something for your boss, they say, good job, it hits one way. When you do something for someone who couldn't do for themselves and they say, man, thank you, that hits a completely different chord in your soul. The gospel is the story of deity doing something for those who could not help themselves. Man, that hits. Because it's not only deity doing something for people who can't help themselves, it's doing something for people who have blasphemed his name for the better part of their existence. A people who have sinned against God, knowing that he's there watching and disregarding him as if he is nothing. Living our life devoid of him. And yet he condescends, comes in and says, I'm still here, baby. That hits different. He didn't have to. He doesn't have to. But he did and he does because he loves me and he loves you. And he gave his life as proof positive of his love for you. Not one soul in this building can say that God has not displayed the ultimate act of love for the for the likes of their sinful soul. Not one of you can say. Because the book of Romans says that God proved his love for us and that while we were still sinners, not after we got together. He didn't say after we got good, he died for us. But that's how we act. I'm going to get right, God. And then you're going to help me, right? He said while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The gospel is sweeter when you understand the beauty of what Jesus has done for your soul. And he didn't have to. Jesus died that we may have everlasting life. And he died so that we may have everlasting life. Check this out, with him. Same author wrote this a little bit later. He says, what we have seen and heard, we also declare to you. Talking about the person and work of Jesus. That's what we've seen, that's what we've heard. He declares this to us. So that you may have fellowship with us, which means when you become a believer in the Lord Jesus, you've you've been adopted into a family. Right. So you get fellowship with other believers. Then it says, and indeed, our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. You get to you get to experience intimacy with God because of the work of the son of God. When when our brother Curtis was singing. He was talking about God seeing you through things. And the way in which he sees you through things is through times of intimacy with him. He changes you, may or may not change the situation, but he gives you the power to endure because you have fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And then you bring that issue, that stuff, that hardness within the body of believers, and they lend you their faith so that you're able to endure. And then at the end, when you've been seen through that particular trial, all you can say is, wow, look at how God got me through. Because every time you try to get yourself through, you crash. That's just the norm. But he died that we may have fellowship with the Father and the Son. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, that's him giving a little, a little foreshadow what's to come, he was with God in the beginning. 
as we flesh out, that's God powering down as we come to the end of the sermon. For some reason, John thought this was the first thing that we needed to know. And so this is what I'm going to give you all some homework to do. My desire is that you guys would take your time tonight. Open up to John chapter one, verse one and two. Read it and ask God, why is this? The He's back. <laughs> ask, you see how it's spirit. Ask God, why is this significant for my soul? What are you telling me by making this the first thing? He could have said anything, but he said this is the first thing. The beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. That's significant. There's power in that. There's something there. And I'm, beloved, it's so hard not to give away the whole cake because I wanted to preach the first five verses and I couldn't because it would be a three-hour long sermon. But go home and read these verses and ask God to do something in you to help you reckon with the importance of, of, of the deity of Jesus, the fact that Jesus is God because he was he wrote this on purpose. Why? Oh, it's not there. It was written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have faith, you may have life in his name.